Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. Today I have Amber Sims and uh, I feel so blessed to uh, be newly in community with her. So uh, we're going to have a good conversation about Black folks, about money, about probably some white supremacy. And we're just going to see where we go with this conversation. So Amber, if you will, introduce yourself to everyone. Hey, y'all. I'm, my name is Amber Webb Sims, and I am I'm a country girl. I was born and raised in Dallas. And um, I guess my hallmark, my claim to fame since I was little has always been that I had a real big mouth and I had a real penchant for saying what I felt like I wanted to say everywhere I was. And um, for better or for worse, <laughs> in good and bad times, I have been like that my whole life. Um, I always been very curious about the world around me. So I grew up loving books. I grew up um, loving to learn. I think that's still the hallmark of who I am. I love to learn. So like I was obsessed with Jeopardy. I was like the only six-year-old who like watched the news, you know. Um, I always wanted to know things. And so that kind of put me on a path of talking about or communicating about what I knew. So very early on, I was like the little kid in church. I always had a speech. I always had a piece. And, you know, then that evolved. I started debating and, you know, basically I just never shut up. You know, I <laughs> I ended up um, getting admitted to Hockaday, the Hockaday School for Girls when I was in eighth grade. So I you know, got to live this very interesting experience of being a not wealthy, not white, not affluent child, you know, being transported to this environment every day where I was around all of these wealthy white girls who had the best of everything. And it was the best and worst experience in my life. You know, there is very real trauma that happens when we put our kids in environments that are not created for us. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but at the same time, you know, I learned how to find my voice. Um, and I became aware at a very early age of things that still resonate with me today, which is that, you know, we all have to care about fundamental unfairness, injustice, you know, I tell people when we were kids, it was not cool for kids to say Black Lives Matter, right? So when the five Black girls in my class, when we were saying it, you know, people called the school and didn't want their kids around us. And there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. So you actually had to have read the books. You actually had to have been able to pull out the receipts. And so um, I became sort of this very accidental activist very early in life. And this idea that I had a responsibility to take what I knew 
and sort of use it to make the world around me better um, was definitely born there um, because I saw firsthand how much I didn't know about the world being transported to a different world every day, right? And so, you know, a lot of us know that person in the community that, you know, the grandmother's call, the big mama's call, baby, tell me what this bill means. Tell me I got this letter in the mail, you know, I got this document, come with me to this place so you can explain it. And so I kind of started being that proxy for my elders and for my family members very early on. And I just realized how much information is withheld from us and how that withholding impacts our ability to advocate for ourselves to even meaningfully understand the decisions we're making, right? You know, because you literally just don't understand the implications of it. And so um, that kind of shaped how I felt about what I wanted to do. So when I went to college, I kind of already knew I wanted to be an attorney and I, you know, stayed on the track. I, I went to law school at Texas Tech in Lubbock and you know, I came out and I did like most people. I started chasing the big money for a while. And and then I woke up one day and realized that capitalism literally kills you, okay? Because I was miserable. I was working all the time and I had no awareness of how the trenches was like impacting my mental health, my mindset. And so I quit to go be a prosecutor thinking that I'm a, you know, help my people and make a difference. And then I realized like my literal job is putting black people in jail and this shit is depressing. Okay. So my literal job is put, my job is literally to put black people in jail. And so I hated that even more. And then I'm like, and I'm broke now because I work for the government. So like I'm putting black people in jail and I'm broke. Barf. <laughs> so I left the DA's office and, um, I started doing trial work, uh, civil litigation, just nasty lawsuits and insurance work. And uh, that's what I do now. But really, my passion is still the same. And that's demystifying information. You know, that's why I'm a trial lawyer. You know, I like talking to people. And I love it when you remember your members come up to me afterwards and they're like, oh, my gosh, I had so much fun you know, you used words we could understand. And I'm like, well, you know, I speak English just like you, you know, and I, you know, so that sort of informed what I do in my own personal time, you know, just taking the information that I know and the things that I've learned along the way and just trying to empower people to use that information to do what they feel helps them to live life as their best selves and in, in a way that honors them. So, yeah. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts as you were, I mean, a lot of thoughts as you were just, just, you know, telling the listeners who you are is number one, I have been selected, well, not selected for jury duty, but, you know, called to, to, to go through the process, right. Uh -huh. For jury duty twice and sitting there with two white attorneys, I might've been inclined to want to be a part of the process, right. Uh, this maybe some people would say it's a privilege to, to do jury duty. I don't know about that, but, but, but I may have been, been inclined if someone in the room was a person of color. Yes. 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 It's crazy how people overlook something so small as seeing somebody else who looks like you seeing somebody else who makes 
a very intimidating, cold environment feel familiar. And I have heard that so many times. Um, honestly, even from defendants, I remember when I was a prosecutor, like I remember when defendant came to me, he was like, you know, sis, I appreciate it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I got a fair deal, but sis, you know, I feel like you was holding it down for us. You know, you weren't trying to, you know, uh, bang me up against the wall. And, and I'm like, as weird as it is that this man who, you know, is adverse to me, I mean, basically what he's really saying is that I think he took some comfort in the fact that there was somebody else who looked like him and he didn't feel like he was being railroaded. You know, don't nobody want to go to jail, whether you actually innocent or guilty. So, you know, I know he wasn't saying he was happy with the outcome, but I do feel like the sense he was expressing was it was nice to see somebody who looked like me who wasn't adverse to me just because of who I am and how I show up in the world. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and, and being a woman of color, but not just a woman of color, like, yes. like, like for us. Yes. Because it's some of us that we can't, we, we know, oh, you're not family. Right. Right. That, that old, all, all skin folk and kin folk. Correct. Correct. But you're kin folk. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and people can feel that they can, you know, the, the other thing that just, I felt like I had um, fireworks going off when you said capitalism kills and I'll, and I'll tell you why Amber, I had this discussion the other night with somebody and we were talking about capitalism, but we were also talking about the military industrial complex. We were talking about yeah. the prison industrial complex. <clears throat> deep in capitalism, but also deeply entrenched and based in white supremacy. Yeah. So when I hear you say, you know, b- being a black attorney and g- like going after the money, but also <laughs> at one point putting black people in jail, it just made me think of all the ways that we're being killed. Yeah. And how we have to divest from white supremacy, too. You know, I think one of the things that we often forget is that any system as powerful and as long lasting as white supremacy is that way because the messages and the marketing is effective, not just to the oppressors, but to the oppressed. So the marketing machine of white supremacy has to market to people like us as well. And so we ingest and internalize and believe those messages too. And so part of our work is to divest from the white supremacist mindsets that we have internalized and the ways that that messaging uh, pushes us to uphold the system, right? So if I can become a hamster on the wheel in the high powered, you know, fancy foo-foo law firms making the money, then what they want me to believe is, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it, right? The system's not racist. I did it. You know, my mom and dad were teachers. I didn't come from anything, you know? And as we perpetuate these stories and blame and shame other people who don't have no boots to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, we just perpetuate the capitalist cycles. And even in the ways of criminal justice, you know, when you are a black person who believes the lie that law and justice are the same thing, you are willing to work in tandem with a system where law and justice are only the same thing for people who are at the top of the hierarchy. You know what I'm saying? And so you have to do your work to very critically interrogate the things that the system wants you to believe 
because it wants you to partake in upholding it as well, because white supremacy is upheld by all of us, all of us. Right. You know? For, for listeners, you guys, I am the most demonstrative podcast <laughs> host. I'm like, yes, like to, to, to everything that, that, that you just said. And I want you to, if you could speak a little bit more about divesting from whiteness. This is a, a phrase, a term that I'm just being f- becoming familiar with over probably the last year that very specific, how we divest from whiteness and so for listeners who are who are not familiar and they're wondering, well, how am I upholding white supremacy? I'm, I'm a black woman, I'm a black man or a black yeah. woman. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, can you go, can you speak to that a, a little bit more? Yeah. So for me, I think what divesting looks like is a willingness to challenge the things that I believe to interrogate my own belief system and to dig out and figure out what the roots of those things are. Um, I tell people all the time, the biggest example I can give is that, you know, as long as we are talking about crabs in a barrel and blaming the crabs, right? They need to work together. You know, the reason why the crabs in the barrel is because none of them help each other get out or, you know, as long as we're talking about the crabs, we're distracted from the barrel because crabs don't belong in a barrel, right? So the only reason there's a barrel in the first place is to consume and destroy the crabs for the benefit of the person who built the barrel. And so divesting really means focusing less on what's going on in the barrel or out of the barrel and the barrel itself. And so thinking about the ways we show up in society and the things we believe while we're there and asking ourselves, is this a belief that causes me to be distracted by what's going on either in the barrel or outside of the barrel? Or is this a belief that allows me to fuel my energy towards destroying a barrel that should not ever exist in the first place? And so for me, divesting looks like keeping my eye on the prize. Like, am I missing the point here by getting involved in small stuff that doesn't really matter? Or am I really focused on a mindset that allows me to be completely invested as much as I'm aware right now in deconstructing this system that is meant to ultimately consume me for the benefit of the people who built it? And by the way, just, you know, what it made me think of is, when we, when we think of divesting from whiteness, what that mean, means for me is I think of white supremacy, the reason that it has flourished <laughs> is because it really, part of the reason that it, that it flourishes is because it, it really is dependent on everybody's ignorance. Yeah. yeah. And as long as we're not doing the work, as long as we're not challenging and asking questions and educating ourselves, white supremacy continues. And, and so part of divesting from whiteness must include educating ourselves about all the things, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and not mm-hmm. just taking um, how we're treated in the, in the workplace or, or how things go, you know, at school, whatever programs are offered or, or punishments or anything, anything yep. politically, why is this this way? 
who benefits from this system? Who benefits from this policy? Who benefits from this law, right? And who benefits from me believing the things that I believe about those systems and structures? Yes. So who benefits from me having the perspective that I have? Because a lot of us, I think, just are unaware and very unintentionally walking in viewpoints and positions that are materially adverse to the places we occupy in society simply because we've never stopped to ask ourselves, who really wins by me being sold out to the beliefs that I'm sold out to? I was a school-based therapist and the majority of my clients were people of color, Hispanics, and and Black boys and girls Mm -hmm. who had gotten in trouble. And I remember having conversations with families, students, and and just kind of letting them know that, that the school to prison pipeline is real. So it's by design, you're getting in trouble or you're truant and, 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 and then, okay, you got to go to court. You got to go to truancy court and you got to, you know, and social services involved and, and, and the juvenile justice system, then they're involved, right? You know, you got a, a court counselor and all of these different things. And, 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 oh, and now you're in, um, what do they call it? Uh, you're in alternative school, right? And it's just this really, I mean, it almost feels like a, a, a linear path to this is how, you know, you're going to be, you know, at some point you'll be incarcerated. Yes. And, and this is the path to incarceration at a young age. And I remember some of the students kind of saying, I didn't know that. So don't help them to ruin your life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense to you. No, it does. And a lot of times what people don't recognize is not only is there a long-term implication, which is the stuff that you're talking about, but there's also a very short-term implication too, because what people don't recognize is that a lot of these children are criminalized, not so much because of the egregious nature of what they've done, but simply because they're in cycles of poverty where they cannot afford to fight it the same way as wealthy people and white people and affluent people. And so when you show up to truancy court and you're offered an opportunity to have a deferred adjudication or you're offered an opportunity to remediate your truancies, but you have to pay court costs that are $178 or so many people, even that amount of money is cost prohibitive. So now you're caught up in a cycle of criminal justice in a way that kids whose parents have the money who, who have the, the resources to remove them from that system are not. And so people forget that not only is there very long-term implications, the stuff that you're talking about, the records of being criminalized, the history of all of those things that follow you throughout school, but the, a lot of that continues to happen because a lot of people don't have the short-term resources to address the issues from the beginning to the end. And so their kids stay in the cycle. And, and that's the exact thing that, that, that we would talk about, you know, the poverty, right? Yeah. The, the lack of resources and they just can't call somebody for a favor or, or so-and-so's in trouble or what should we do? Yeah. We don't, we don't have all of that access. And so then our children, again, their lives are ruined because of it. So, so, so divesting from, from whiteness is having access to that information, knowing the game, that's being played, you know, in terms of divesting from whiteness, I'm thinking also about like anti-racism work and 
how that's become profitable for white America. You've been speaking about that recently. Um, can you talk more about what can black people do in terms of bringing earnings back into our community, into our pockets? Yeah. So I think one of the things that we have to recognize about racial capitalism is that it will and it has unapologetically profiteered off of our pain. And so I think that for us as Black people, one of the ways that we can help to fight against that is to keep the moral imperative of anti-racism at the center and resist this urge to make it a sort of soup du jour, whatever is hot at the moment, um, and to keep from indulging the work of our liberation um, as, a, as a trend, you know? And so I think for us that, that moral clarity um, will help to neutralize some of that. But the reality of it is, is that we are entrenched in a system that will capitalize off of any and everything. And so there is no way for Black people as a minority to stop that. But what we can do is call it out. What we can do is raise the flag that this is commodifying, this is objectifying, this is a way that you all are exploiting and profiteering us. And we can use our voices to sound the alarm because I, I think it is both ironic and also kind of sad that it took so long for people to realize what was happening. Like, why are you having a DEI seminar with a white speaker? Like, or if you are wanting to really understand the experience of oppressed and marginalized people, and really create environments where we are able to flourish and thrive, why are you bringing white people in to talk to you about that? I think it's sort of, um, in some ways as American as apple pie that it is happening. But for us, I think we also have to encourage and continue to force the normalization of paying black people for their labor. Cause I think that's a big part of it. You know, they wanna hear our sad stories. They wanna hear the difficulties we have but they don't want to attach any expertise to the advice we give about how to remediate it. They don't want to attach any labor to the toil it takes on a body to share the trauma and the hurt and the pain of showing up in a world that is fundamentally adverse to your being. And so part of it, I think, is that we just have to continue to push for the normalizing of paying Black people for their labor, because I think one of the reasons why white people have been able to exploit and profiteer in this area is because they're the only ones who are used to getting paid for doing this kind of work. You know, Black people don't get paid to speak. Black people don't get paid to lead seminars. Black people don't get paid to, you know, go in and lead small groups. Those are the type of things that the expectation has always been that we'll come and share, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're not working, we're not laboring, we're sharing. And so I think we just have to continue to demand that not only is our labor compensated, but that our expertise mm -hmm. as people who are living in this struggle, speaking in this struggle and fighting to deconstruct this system be recognized and the proper value be placed on it. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people 
who really have been doing this work for a long time, particularly Black women, one of the reasons why those voices have not been elevated is because they are unwilling to do the work just any kind of way. And there is resistance to the mainstream to having to meet those requirements in order to have those voices in their space. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the, the DEI, I don't know if you call it an industry or, or what it is, but this diversity inclusion, equity and inclusion space, but it, it feels like it's it's just checking off a box. Yes, yes. And, and it's particularly that because it ain't even worded right. You know, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's literally the reverse. It's like equity, inclusion. Diversity is the last step, right? Yeah. You don't have a party and invite people first. Like you play in, you prepare, you set the environment, and then you bring the people in. And so just even the way we talk about it in our society um, is proof of the fact that this is um, industry, that this is profit-driven because we talk about diversity as some type of means to an end. Plantations were diverse, okay? Plantations were diverse. I mean, so if diversity is your ultimate goal, you can have diversity and not have a bit of equity, not have a bit of justice, not have a bit of inclusion, not have an anti-racist framework in sight, but you got a bunch of different people who look different or who are from different places. I mean, we had a whole industry built off of that in our country called a slavery. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it was diverse mm-hmm. as hell. Those people were from different places. They they were not all the same. All black people are not the same. They were, you know, from different countries in Africa. They had different religions. They spoke different languages. Um, the white people that were propagating the enslavement of black bodies were from different places. So we've had diversity before that was divorced from any true commitment to justice and equity. And so the fact that we are trying to literally replicate that and call it something else is laughable. It's laughable. Right. It is. It is. It's laughable. Uh, and, and I do think it's interesting that over the last year, year and a half, maybe two years, that that DEI is just, it's kind of the cool thing right now. Yes. Yes. It, it's trendy. And, and it's going to pass. And, and I would recommend anybody that's doing this work for white people, one, demand to get paid, two, demand, okay, if I, if, if I come in and I, and I have this conference or, or I, I come and speak for you, I'm one of your speakers, or I come and do some training with your, with your organization, with your employees, what exactly are you going to do? Because oftentimes as an employee, employees just attend the thing, but then nothing changes. So, so have some expectations for the people who are even paying you or expecting you to, to help them with this anti-racism work, but because it is trendy right now and, and trends pass. Absolutely. 100%. So on your podcast, Brokish, which I'll obviously have the link in the show notes and everybody needs to listen to this podcast, every single person, um, you discuss ways in which white America profits from black pain. And we've even talked about it a little bit here already. And it really made me think about power, about privilege, about, you know, how do, how does everybody, you know, profit from our trauma, the things that we experience? Um, 
Can you speak a little bit more about the ways in which Black pain specifically is profited from? Yeah, well, I think one of the main ways that we talk about that in Brokish is we talk about the fact that sort of Black pain is normalized, first of all. So one of the ways that it's profited from is that the system sends out this message that that's a par for the course, right? So, you know, that is what you should expect. But we also really try to sound the alarm because a lot of us as Black people, we talk about the system as it's broken. But the system is not broken. It is working exactly the way it was designed to work. Um, And one of the things that we explore in Brokish is that the system is designed to break us, right? It's designed to break us. So the broken-ish around us is not because the system is broken, right? The system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, but the system is conspiring to break us. And so one of the ways that the system is able to profiteer off of Black pain is to, first of all, keep us on the hamster hamster wheel of trying to fix something that's not broken. It doesn't need to be fixed. It needs to be deconstructed. And so we try to highlight that in Brokish, um, where we really try to help people to see the connection between um, not only the money in their pocket, but how the dollars got there, the ways that the system conspires to keep us in certain cycles, and really to show people how, you know, all of those things ultimately relate back to how you're able to show up in the world as a financially empowered person. So many things relate to money that we don't realize. And if the only thing we're ever talking about is personal responsibility, you can't save your way out of white supremacy. You can't budget your way out of white supremacy. You can't financially plan your way out of white supremacy. And so if that's the only thing you're talking about, if you're not talking about education, taxes, environmental justice, you know, those types of things, you're missing the point that this is not a broken system. It's doing what it's supposed to do by trying to break you. And so, yeah. That was a word right there. And I, I, I wrote down two thoughts. It's, you know, when you said it's it's working in the way that it's designed to work and I wrote against us, right? <laughs> amen, amen, amen. That's why it's broke-ish. It ain't broke, it's just broke-ish. Yeah. It's broke for us. Yeah. It's broke yeah. for us. It wasn't created for us, so it's not meant to work for us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, but but saving, investing, budgeting ourselves, we can't do any of that outside of white supremacy. I can love that you just said that because the person that I thought about, I don't know if you're familiar with, I don't even know if he's around anymore, but the financial guy, he's a white guy, Dave Ramsey. Have you oh, heard of him? Oh, yes, child. Oh, yes. Barf. Yes. I was thinking... Yeah, his, some of the stuff is 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 good, but some of those things they're not for us. No, no, we, no. we can't just. A lot of us can't just pay cash for you know for for the college education. We can't just write the check for right. the vehicle that we want, or or some of the other things that I listen to as I because I did before I knew any better. Went through his whole. Me too. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was years ago before I knew any better, but anyhow, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and it's, it's kind of related, but it's kind of not, um, I wanted to talk about silence in the workplace and oftentimes 
now I work for myself, but before when I worked for other people, you know, we've always heard that you're not supposed to talk about money. You're not supposed to talk about religion. You're not supposed to talk about politics in the workplace. And now I, I, I've just, you know, well, for, for a number of years, I've thought about the ways in that that, that even that, that HR policy, so to speak, is steeped in white supremacy. And, and, and that's one of just one of the reasons that silence, that legal enforcement of silence is, is why we have the racial wage gap. Can you speak to that at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think also, again, this is where you have to recognize the messaging because it's not just the messaging that comes from the HR department and the people at work, right? It's our grandmamas and our aunts and uncles, girl, you better don't, don't act up at your job. You know, <laughs> don't go to that job acting no fool. You know, yeah. keep your job, you know, and so mm -hmm. a lot of us are coming wired with this message that we need to behave ourselves at work, right? We need to do what they tell us, not rock the boat, not be disruptive so that we can survive. And so when you come there with that wiring already, it's just um, reaffirmed when you hear the coded words like this is confidential you know we don't talk about these things um, we really you know and even the gaslight you know I know when I took my job um, at the company I work for now I started with a, a white woman who is we both graduated from law school at the same time been practicing law 10 years and I remember the day I came in to get my offer letter uh, my boss said to me, she was like, you know, I would appreciate some discretion in this, you know, this is a very generous package and, you know, um, not, not everybody gets these things. And really what it was French for is that we, we gave a white girl more money, right? She's, she's making more money than you. And I mean, cause that's true. I mean, I know it now. I know it for a fact. She, she absolutely got paid more money than me, but these ways that we sort of get told to remain silent, play on messages that we come there wired with. Because I think so many of us are made to believe the lie that the indispensable component in the employee-employer relationship is the employer. Like we are not taught to believe in our own value, the value of our own labor, the value of what we bring to a, a company or what we bring to a job we are made to believe that they are indispensable and we are dispensable. And so we comply a lot of times out of fear, out of fear that we will not be able to take care of ourselves. Um, and these jobs know that, that's the truth. They know it and they exploit it, they exploit it. And so a lot of people very recently are starting to build networks where it's like, you know, I'll tell you how much I make. I'll tell you, you know, what I ask for because it is real. I worked for Farmers Insurance Company from 2013 to 2017. And I was a part of a class action suit brought by women employees who were attorneys, female attorneys at Farmers Insurance Group. And I will tell you, we all done got our little $2 class action checks before in the mail. I got $28,000 which means that if, if that was my part of the class action, I can only imagine how much I was underpaid, right? right? And this all happened because one woman heard a guy bragging about his salary in a break room in California. And so for a lot of us, 
we have to be willing to not only speak about it, but when we learn that there is an injustice, we have to have the courage to go and say, pay me what I'm worth. Pay me what I'm worth. A lot of times, and, and you're so right, that fear is entrenched in our culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just people of color. It is women. It is everybody. And, and what white supremacy says is, well, you should just be happy to have a job. Don't ask any questions. Don't say anything, right? Don't challenge anything. Just be happy we hired you. You know, we could have chose somebody else. Yes, yes. That is the voice of white supremacy. And and we do. I've even felt the, the fear of, well, if I ask this question, I'm going to be labeled because Black women, we deal with that every single day. They're going to see me as problematic mm-hmm. or confrontational. Mm-hmm. And hell, I got to get through this probationary period so I can get to my benefits. Exactly. 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 But you know, that's part of the Wookiee of capitalism. It teaches, it wants you to aspire to labor, right? It wants you to tie your provision to labor. I will never forget when I was at Hockaday, one of my girlfriends, and I won't even say her name, but they are oil heirs and heiresses, I guess if that's the proper term. And she, I remember she looked at me one day and she was like, yeah, my grandfather told us that only poor people have dream jobs. And it, I didn't get it then. It took me a minute. But once I got it, I was like, this like what she's really saying is people, people with means don't aspire to labor. Labor is not aspiration, aspirational, right, to people at the top of the capitalistic hierarchy. She's only poor people have a dream job. Like I don't dream of labor, right? And so for so many of us, labor is aspirational because we believe the lie that the way we have to have our needs met is through this industrial labor system. That's the only way we can have what we need. And that's why white supremacy and capitalism fuel scarcity complex. The myth of scarcity is perpetuated because they want us to aspire to labor because they want us to tie labor to our provision. On labor being aspirational and and white supremacy tying labor to our provision, we've also unintentionally, historically tied labor to our purpose. Yes, yes, yes. Have this job, have it for an X amount of years. If I can do that, if I can just stay on this job, this job will afford me this and that, then I've, I've done everything that I need to do. That's it. Yes. Tying labor to our provision and, and, and also to our purpose. That's, again, going back to your original point, Amber, why we have to divest from whiteness. Yes. Yes. And then you, yes. you, you know, in, in terms of not aspiring to labor, obviously, thanks to my friend, Letty, uh, I've got James Baldwin in my mind, right? Uh, and, and so when I'm thinking, I've spent my life and I'm in my 40s thinking, well, okay, these jobs weren't right for me. I need to go in this direction and do this work. <laughs> it's always I need the right job. I need the right job. I've never found the right job. Yes, 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 yes. Oh my gosh, so much yes. Yes. And I'm I'm just now over the last few months realizing that although I love being a therapist, I remember saying therapy is my life. I could do this forever. No Mm -hmm. the hell I can't. Right, right. It's not my job. It's not my life. I mean, it's not, it's my job, but it's, it's not my life. Yeah. Yeah. This is work. 
Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the sum total of who I am. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And well, that's another so- way we have to divest. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because if, if we can be tricked into conflating ministry with labor, right, we will be willing to self-exploit. And so there's a difference between saying, I don't want to work forever, which doesn't mean I don't want to minister forever, right? Because part of it is that's a gift. That's a part of the gift. And you nurtured that gift by getting professional and educational credentials, but it's a gift, you know? And so the, the, the industrial complex wants us to believe that our ministry is intertwined inextricably with our labor, right? So that if I'm not laboring, I can't minister. So no, I don't want to work forever. That doesn't mean I'm not going to minister forever, but no, I don't want to work forever. And I'm not sorry. Yeah, I'm not sorry. That's so funny. I met with a, a retirement planner, financial advisor, actually. And, and so she was asking me, you know, well, what, what age do you want to retire? You know, are we thinking 67, 68? <laughs> I said, I'll be retired well before this. <laughs> okay. 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 No. I'm not being nobody's therapist. Yes. Yes. 67, 68 retiring. Yeah. yeah. For the first time? No. 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 We're not doing that. Right. So, right. so, so yeah, so all of this is important. And, and I want it to kind of... You know, we've talked about silence. We've talked about white supremacy and and how it's just really been, in my opinion, devastating. Um, It's not my opinion. It's a fact. Devastating to our mindset overall. Um, And it has impacted our dollars. But I also, I want to go back and talk about silence. I think because I so often as a trauma therapist, I connect everything to like either white supremacy um, or abuse or trauma. Everything is steeped in, okay, what kind of trauma, right? Or, or what part does white supremacy have in this issue? And so uh, my listeners have heard me talk about the similarities between abusers and white supremacists or colonizers and how they both have done a, a just a really effect, effective job of stripping us of our voice and demanding our silence. And, and then can you, what are your thoughts on this and, and how white America has dictated what we're allowed to speak about in society? I, I talk, I mention this often from a legal point of view. I mean, white supremacy is the oldest racket in the book. It is, it is a criminal enterprise and the, the people who have been victimized by this criminal enterprise are seriously the only people in the world who are supposed to act like there's no residual impacts of that in their body, in their souls, in their minds. And this has been going on for generations, for centuries. You know, um, white settler colonialism, imperialism, um, the transatlantic slave trade that uh, grew out of that imperialist conquest. Like the fact that we are supposed to act like a hierarchy where you are positioned at the bottom, where you are systematically and systemically disadvantaged and dehumanized. This is the only context in which we tell people that they're supposed to get up, wash their face, go to work, act like it is normal to sit 
in your home and watch a man die on TV because somebody has a knee on his neck for 10 whole minutes and you're supposed to be able to go to work the next day, have conference calls, or to watch the news and hear that a young Black boy who had the audacity to jog through a neighborhood uh, is shot and killed and we're supposed to just continue to move forward or that a woman who is asleep in her home and wakes up to what she believes are intruders. And then when they try to defend themselves against the perceived intruders, they are victimized. And we're supposed to take all of this stuff in like it is normal, like there's nothing to it. And so it is not only that there's trauma, but there's a double layered trauma because we're supposed to be quiet about it and pretend like it doesn't exist. And so that's not my ministry. That's not my skill set. But what I can say is that it's offensive that that's the expectation placed upon me, that I'm supposed to go through life experiencing all of these things, not process it, continue to be productive, and then go out into the world and face all of those things and act like I'm perfectly okay. I mean, it's, it is, we would... We would have Dr. Phil episodes for days if sex abuse survivors were treated that way or people who came out of a cult were treated that way. I mean, we would just never normalize that as, as acceptable in any other area of society. But, but it's been normalized and expected and accepted in the Black community. Absolutely. Yeah, that we can go through all these things and I want to tie it back to when I did school therapy. I just found it just so ridiculous that I would have to explain to a teacher, to a principal, to a school social worker, counselor, guidance counselor, this is a child. One of their parents is not in the home. There's some, some issues with substance abuse. There's some issues. They're, yeah. they're living in poverty. This is the neighborhood that they live in. This is their reality every single day, Okay. And your expectation that they should come to school every day and pretend like everything's okay and learn their math and learn their science, learn their social studies, everything's good because they're in school and you're not taking into account what is living the trauma that is residing in their body every single day. Yeah. yeah. And, and that expectation is steep in white supremacy. And that's the same expectation that's for you. And we're, we're adults. Absolutely. We're supposed to watch George Floyd be murdered on national television and go to work and speak to Betsy and, and Susie and everything's fine. We just ignore it. And if I do need to take off, I got to use my time, right? I got to use right. my financial benefits. I take my personal time off because this is not recognized as a national day of mourning or as, as, as a part of a collective suffering. I have to at my own expense, right? at my own financial expense, take my own time off because that's a personal problem. That's not a part of a collective suffering. That's not part of a collective trauma. That's my personal problem. So if I do wanna have some awareness that I need to respond to it, I have to do it on a personal level at my own personal expense because that's my problem. That's not our problem, right? Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. And for anybody that's listening and, and you're just still not clear on what we're putting out, 
my stance is always, you guys have heard me as a therapist speak about the importance of naming things, of naming your pain, of speaking out. I would say just listening to you, Amber, and learning from you, that is one of the first steps. You have to speak out. You have to question. You do have to challenge the status quo. Challenge, you know, anything that just doesn't feel right, seem right. Mm -hmm. Challenge injustice. Is there anything as a first step for anybody that's still just unclear of what we're putting out? You know, what would you have to add to that that they can do as a first step? I think that it's reasonable for some people to, you know, be skeptical or even overwhelmed or not um, sure. I, I think a good first step is just to say, you know, I'm willing to entertain the idea that it might be different than I believe it is, you know, because for some of us, a lot of the problem is that we won't even become open to a different framework, a different way of thinking. Um, And so, you know, you don't have to buy what I'm selling. You don't have to buy what I'm selling. I'm okay with that because part of the reason why it's important for me to teach is because I don't want you to be dependent on me anyway. I want you to take this information and I want you to you to empower yourself to make the decisions that are best for you. But I will say that it's important for all of us to at least be willing to entertain the possibility that perhaps it's different than what I think it is. Because I think once we have that openness, then it allows us to see and process and understand information in a different way. Because a lot of us, um, the what we call research, what we call, um, you know, doing uh, the work is really just bias reaffirmation. We, we're just reaffirming what we already believe, right? We just, right. you know, um, taking in information from the same people in places that make us feel like we write. You know, and there's not ever really any ability to say, oh, I think I'm wrong. I had a girlfriend tell me once she was like, Amber, you have to realize that you most of the time you've spent around white people has been around affluent white people. You don't really know a lot of dirt poor white people. So I don't think that's the experience for most white people. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to see that because you're right. I went to this affluent prep school and then I went out to college on the East Coast with a bunch of rich white people. And then. I went to law school. And so you're right. My experience is skewed because there is a racial and a socioeconomic intermingling that has impacted the people I've been proximate to. And so I think for a lot of us, just just the willingness to say, maybe there's a different way to look at it. And I think once we get that willingness, we can take the path. We can take it from there. So uh, here are my, my fun questions. Okay. If you're listening to music, um, and I'm just going to assume that you listen to music. I'm just. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What are you dancing to or what are you listening to? Let me ask Jesus to forgive me in advance. Uh, so I am at my core. I'm a 90s R&B junkie. I, I just mm-hmm. the 90s R&B is my is my jam. That's my you know, I love me some 90s R&B. But when I'm dancing just terrible, terrible rap music. I mean, I just, just the, the trap and not even just the mainstream, like the Dallas trap, the, you know, the, just, 
very very terrible rap music you know and and you know but I'm but but because I am double-minded you know after that then I go listen to gospel music you know but (laughs) because you know that's what I do you know and I ask you I ask Jesus to forgive me but Mm -hmm. uh definitely what is on my always on replay is 90s R&B you know I'm a 90s R&B girl through and through yeah I, I am also guilty of I can play some Mary J or I can play some Prince. Yes. And immediately after that, because of the way my Spotify is sometimes set up, what will come after that is some uh, Dorinda Clark Cole or <laughs> Israel and Newbreed or, or, you know, whoever. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Bob Leonard. I mean, yeah. it, yes. And then ludicrous. It just that's right. And I'm only ashamed if I get caught. Like if, if don't nobody catch me, I'm I'm cool with that. But I'm only a little bit ashamed of somebody around. Be like, girl, I don't know what Spotify doing. I don't even. <laughs> oh, they tripping, child. I don't know that's how it. this got it. I don't know how this got in my mix. Yeah, so, I don't so have you, no idea. You are not alone. Uh, <laughs> so, so who or what makes you laugh? So I will say, I. I love funny people. And right now, the people who make me laugh the most, honestly, are my kids. Like, I, you know, I, they get it honest. Like, we are a family of comedians. We love to laugh. I love to laugh. You know, my parents love to laugh. And so that is one of the things that feeds my soul is being around people I can laugh with. And right now, it is just tripping me out to see my kids develop these little personalities and become you know comedians in their own right roast kings and queens you know they just be dropping these bombs I'm like god my you know we were in Kroger the other day and my daughter she she said to me she said mommy am I going to be late to basketball practice do you have to go home and fix your wig again or can we just take the groceries and go straight to basketball and I'm like do you want to fight like I mean Cause we can fight. Like if you just want to fight, we yeah. can fight. But I'm like, she yeah. just be roasting me on accident, and it's hilarious. Yeah. Just to yeah. you know, yeah. Oh, I love her, and I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, she's just straight up with it's it. It's a shake. We, we just need to drop the the grocery yeah. and go to basketball. You don't. Do you have to fix your wig? I'm like, okay. If I do, that's it. I love it. <laughs> Who or what inspires you? What inspires me right now is knowing that my kids are watching me and trying to remain invested in um, doing my self-work and normalizing for them the process of working and struggling to be better and also helping them to see that it's okay to still have a dream even while you're cultivating the lives of little people. And so just really trying to create a different paradigm for them is what's inspiring me a lot right now. And for people that want to follow you on social, look up your, your podcast, uh, can you just tell them where do they listen? Where do they find you on social media? Yeah, so Brokers, you can find us on any platform where you normally get your podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify. Um, we are on Instagram at Brokish Podcast, B-R-O-K-E-I-S-H Podcast. And um, you can find us on the internet at brokish.com. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amber W Sims S I M S. And uh, yeah, you know, I I like to cut up on on the internet, so you can you know come and follow my little bootleg freedom fight on Instagram, and you'll you know hopefully learn a little and laugh a little, and you know we can just have fun. Amber, thank you so much for for joining me today and this has been a great conversation. I didn't get to all the things that I wanted to get to, but thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure was all mine, Tasha. Thank you for having me and I had so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.